All right. Hey, if you, uh, if you haven't been coming, we're in a series called Schemes. And you see how I did that? And so um, we've been taking a look at, it's a five-part series. Tonight is week three. We've been taking a look at the primary tactics deployed by Satan against Christians in their walk. And so tonight, I want you to jump all the way to the end of the Bible, which is actually describing something at the very beginning of the Bible. We're going to be in Revelation, my second favorite book of the Bible, um, Revelation chapter 12. And if you need a Bible, Chris and James have Bibles for you. You can keep it if you don't have one. I just don't want to see it on eBay. So... So chapter 12, Revelation, and you can just kind of draw your eye toward verse 7. I will pray, and then we will get started. All right, Jesus, um, excited for what you're going to do, despite how I feel, I know what you want to do and how much you care for the people that are here. And so I I pray that you would just shove me aside, um, take this this time, Holy Spirit, to have your way with us all, myself included, that we would learn under you, um, that we would um, uncover some of these tactics, but that we would be then covered by the Savior. And so would you score our hearts, open them up, but heal them and restore them in the process as today could very, tonight could very well open some wounds um, but as we know, even with modern medicine, sometimes wounds have to be opened before they can be cleaned and healed and closed back up. And so I pray tonight that we would not focus on the accuser, but we would focus on our advocate. And so, Jesus, would you be preeminent in all things? Holy Spirit, I ask for your ability to teach. I ask for your ability to learn for us all, uh, for our good and for your glory. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So we've been going through this series called Schemes, and it comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. It says that in order we are to be aware, because so that in order that Satan might not outwit us, we are, to be un, we are not to be unaware of his schemes. So we are not to be unaware of his schemes. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, be sober, be vigilant, That's a militant term. Your translation may say be on guard. It says because your adversary who is literal, he is not a spiritual force. He is a spiritual being. He is not a moral parameter. He is an actual literal enemy. It says because your adversary, the devil walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And so as we've been taking a look in this series, we do know that we have a literal enemy and he doesn't want to simply annoy us. He wants to destroy us. And if we are unaware, we will be caught off guard. And even in the first week when we took a look at his first and primary tactic, at least what I believe to be his primary tactic in the lie, we saw we took a look at Pearl Harbor. We took a look at the fact that the, the ability of the invading forces to cause such damage was because we were completely unaware of their scheme. And it arguably goes down as the most 
mind-blowing example of the element of surprise. And Satan wishes, and one of his greatest tactics is actually causing people to believe that he doesn't exist, okay? But in that sense, then we would be unaware that these schemes are taking place. So we have an enemy. He doesn't seek to annoy us. He seeks to destroy us. And if we are unaware, we will be caught off guard, but more so. Years back, I taught a series called Jesus and Demons. We took a look at all, well, a couple of Jesus's encounters with demons. And I impressed upon us that this was not a, this was not a series about demons. It was a series about Jesus's authority over all things. And so I want to do the same as I've done every week is this is not primarily the graphic and the title assume this is not primarily a series about the devil and his schemes, but about Jesus and his promises that overcome those schemes. And so we've taken a look at, in the first week, we took a look at the lie and these series, these, the sermons are online. If, if you would like to go back, we took a look at his first scheme, which is to lie. He is a liar. He is a deceiver. And he fed the first parents, our first parents, Adam and Eve. He fed them a lie that he himself believed, which is that they could be like God. And it got him kicked out of heaven and it got Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden. The second week, last week, we took a look at temptation. He is not just a liar, but he is a tempter. And so he loves to level temptation at us. And I I implored that we not simply focus on the temptation, but that we convert it into attention to Jesus. That, That when we encounter that temptation, we understand that Jesus has been there, tempted in every way, yet without sin. He stands on the line of temptation with us and says, I know what you're going through. I've been here. He's never crossed the line into sin, but he has stepped to the line as fully man in every way he was tempted as we are. And so I wanted us to shift our attention from the temptation to the savior. And this week we're going to be taking a look at the accusation. And so we know that he is a liar. He is a tempter. And you need to know that he is the accuser. So I had you open up to Revelation 12, 7 through 11. This may be peculiar to you, but I want you to know that Revelation, I've taught through the whole book. It's every single word. It's an amazing book. It's something that Hollywood could never do justice with. Spielberg probably couldn't wrap his mind around what goes on in the book of Revelation. It is being given to the apostle John, the last remaining apostle. He is very old. It is Jesus revealing to him himself. And Jesus is being revealed in the book of Revelation and he is doing the revealing in the book of Revelation. But one of the common misconceptions is that the entire book of Revelation is all futuristic. It's not. Certainly much of it is. Over 70% of it actually references the Old Testament because like every good storyteller, God wraps the whole thing up by going back to the beginning. But you need to know that there are sections that are simply describing behind the scenes events in the spiritual realm that have always been taking place. And so certainly much of Revelation is futuristic, but some of it describes behind the scenes, the spiritual battle that has been going through all of human history. This is one of those chunks. And I want to read through it and then we'll go through it. It says, we're going to read, let's go with 11 verses. Well, seven through 11, I should say. It says, and a war broke out in heaven, Michael And his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. 
So the great dragon was cast out and the serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world was he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to death. And so here's the third tactic. And I want you to see through the course of this that he's been reverse engineering to get to this goal. And keep in mind, Satan is not God. He cannot be everywhere at all times. I've said this before. I don't want us to attribute godhood to him that says Satan can be anywhere at all times. And so if, if Satan is oppressing me, he can be oppressing you at the same time. That's not true because he's not God. He can only be in one place at one time. And chances are he's not stationed on you. He's not stationed on me as cool as I think I am. If he had one place to be in all of the universe, I don't think it's picking on me. But what he does have is a legion of demons He has a third of an innumerable force, the Bible says, a third of the angelic realm committed cosmic treason with him. That's why it says his angels at that time, they were angels and they were cast out. So he has a third of an innumerable force and they are amazing creatures, smart, wise, holy, strong, powerful. And they've been now cast out. And so he commands a legion of demons. So just as much as we talk about Satan, know that the accusing comes from his minions as well in the form of the demonic realm. And I want to have two goals as we approach this. I want to first, I want to uncover why knowing that we are forgiven. Yes. We Christians, we love that. We are forgiven. We say it, but why isn't it a heartfelt reality for us? So I want to first and foremost, uncover why knowing that we're forgiven, we still struggle with accusation. An accusation is predicated on the past as we're going to talk about. So why if we're Christians and we all nod our head when pastor says we're forgiven, right? Yeah, totally. So why is it that we continue to struggle with accusations? One, number two, I want us to understand how to overcome accusation amid the repeated remembrance of defeat. And so just as we did last week with the temptation, we took a look at what could be called a paradigmatic, which is a Bible nerd word for a verse that is is a paradigm for us to take a look at for how to deal with this. We did the same thing with Jesus and the tempting last week. It's, It's just best to go to the one who is the best at refuting temptation. So we did that last week. This week, we're gonna take a look at this paradigmatic section of scripture to see how to overcome the accusation. So I wanna undercover why we're still struggling with it and how to overcome it. And again, as I said, this is that initial, we've talked about this and we talked about it the very first week. This, though it's at the end of the Bible, this is describing, we don't know exactly when it happened, but we do know it happened before Satan slithered into the garden. And so this is pre-Genesis 3 at some point is that what has happened is that there has been cosmic treason in heaven, has been stirred in heaven. You pick a fight with God, you lose. They've been cast out as we're gonna see. And then we know that they were cast down to earth. And at some point, Satan then slithered into the garden and fed our parents the same lie that he himself believed in the heavenly realms, which is you can be like God. And it didn't work out well. And so it says this, it says, and war broke out in heaven. That's what he's referring to. 
And so we don't know when, but you can believe that this is pre-Genesis 3. This is actually describing an epic battle of eternity past. And it says, Michael, and I want you to know that that is Satan's opposing equal. It is not Jesus. Jesus is not Satan's opposing equal. Satan is not Jesus's opposing equal. Jesus is king above the entire battlefield. Satan has an opposing equal. As the highest ranking member of the demonic realm, his opposing equal is the archangel Michael, who is the highest ranking in the angelic realm. Those two are opposing equals. Jesus is king above all. That has to set the standard. It's not the fight about Satan and Jesus. It's about this one specifically is about Satan and Michael and Jesus having sovereign Lord over all. So as a war broke out, Michael and the angels fought with the dragon and that's the devil and the dragon and his angels because they were angels at the time before they were cast out and became demons and they fought, but they did not prevail. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. I want you to know what those two titles mean. The devil in the Greek literally means slanderer. And slander is what? A form of speak, right? Communication, lie, but it's a vocal thing. You can slander someone. We have entire case law predicated on if you violated slander law on your blog or on your podcast or in your video or in a public speech, we have slander law. It is not physically assaulting them. It is saying something that slanders them. And so devil in the Greek means slanderer. Satan in the Hebrew, it's the Hebrew transliteration of adversary. He was given the title devil and Satan adversary and slanderer when he was kicked out of heaven and cast down to the earth. And it says the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. That's the line. He deceives the whole world and he tempts them. He was cast down to earth and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for thee. What? Accuser. There is nowhere else in the Bible that this word is found, to my knowledge, to my investigation. It is the one place, the one time that someone is labeled as such, and it is given to the devil, it is given to Satan. It says the accuser of the brethren. As we said, Satan is first and foremost a liar and a deceiver. He is then tempter and then accuser. And I, I wrote these notes down as I fascinated on it, that the lying and the tempting is to get us to a place where he can then accuse us. He's reverse engineering this. His end game has always been the accusation, but he had to reverse engineer. He had to get us to that outcome. And so he lies, he deceives, therefore then he can accuse. He's reverse engineering his way to the accusation the whole time. That's why he lies. That's why he deceives That's why he tempts is to get us into a place where he can then use it back on us in the accusation. Think of it like this, lying and temptation is the one-two punch. Anyone know anything about fighting? One of my skills in the Marine Corps, one of my second jobs was as a martial arts instructor. I went through a 
brutal martial arts instructor course. It was the worst three weeks of my life. I would rather do three months of Marine Corps boot camp again than to ever do those three weeks. 18-hour days, absolutely pummeling, not only having to learn every belt, but having to teach every belt. We had to be certified in every belt and then certified in teaching every belt. We began every morning at 5 a.m. with body hardening, where you stand with a partner and punch sensitive areas of your body to deaden nerves. We spent half hour kicking each other in the side of the leg over and over with combat boots to simply deaden our legs, to deaden our arms. And one of the things that we learned, brutal course, is that the majority of fights end up on the ground. You need to know that. If you've seen a brawl at some point, UFC is basically predicated on this. Is he a boxer? Is he a ground fighter? Is he a wrestler, right? But we know at some point, if you land that one-two punch, if you stun and knock down, it goes to what's known as a ground and pound. And that lie and that temptation is the one-two hit that throws you on your heels and it hits the ground. And when Satan jumps on top of you and begins that ground and pound, that's what the accusion feels like. That's what being accused is like. That's him on top of you after the one-two of lying and temptation. And now he's coming at you with rain of fists fists of rain. And so it's a one-two punch that's then followed up by that ground game, which is where he gets on top of you in the wake of the lies, in the wake of that temptation. He got us to the point where he stunned us and now he's on us. And that's when a light, that's when a fight goes from dangerous to deadly, from dangerous to deadly. And he's been reverse engineering this the whole time. And he does this because Satan knows that as a Christian, Satan knows this. Look, he is very well versed in the Bible. I don't know why we aren't. We saw that last week. Did he not use Bible against Jesus? He tried at least. He left parts out that didn't suit him. But he knows scripture. If I tell you you're going to step into a ring and he knows boxing, you're like, I'll see what happens. I'll just work on wrestling. You, you want to match tit for tat in a war, don't you? You want to have an equal response. And so Satan knows the Bible. And he knows this. He knows that you were chosen in Jesus before the foundation of the earth. Ephesians 1, 4. He knows that those who are placed in the father's hand, no man can remove. John 10, 28 through 29. He knows that we are kept and preserved in Jesus. That's Jude 1. Satan knows that he cannot take your salvation, but he is content taking the enjoyment of your salvation. He knows his Bible. I just gave you three verses, many more. He knows that he who's been placed in the father's hand, no man can remove. He knows that the Holy Spirit does not lose a fight. If you're indwelled with the Holy Spirit, he will not lose a fight to a demon. He will not let you go. Satan knows this as a Christian and dwell with the Holy Spirit. He knows that he cannot steal your salvation, but he can steal your enjoyment of your salvation. You're flourishing because of your salvation. And so this sets up the primary tactic, which is to make you believe that what you have done is who you are. This is his primary tactic and accusation is to make you believe that you are that which you have done. I've got a note in here to bring up my own experience. When I was first asked to, I, I, I honestly didn't really experienced much of this. Uh, I was rebellious in high school, started to come back to faith in college, certainly kind of turned it more on when, when I got married and started getting back to church and serving. But 
like we talked about, I think at the beginning of the series, have you ever been, have you ever been to a football game where the defense tackles the guys on the bench? No, why? They're not advancing anything. But once you step on the field, you can be on the team and be on the bench. They're members of the team, yeah? But once you step on the field, now there's a target on your back. Now defense wants to crush you. They're fine with you sitting on the bench because you're not a threat to their game. But once you step on the field, big target gets drawn on your back. And I never knew the sort of intense accusation until Pastor Rob right over there years ago on a Sunday said, hey, what are you doing Wednesday? I said, oh, teaching my fitness boot camp class. Why? I'll drop it. I'll get someone to cover. He goes, teach for me. I'm like, uh, no. Because in the back of my head, I'm like, I've never even studied the Bible. I'm the son of a pastor. And I have made everyone believe that I know the Bible by arguing and debating tenants in colleges sort of stuff. Never studied the Bible for myself. Never. So you're like, man, you've been studying the Bible your whole life? Nope. Been studying the Bible since two days before my first sermon. It's not a good model, okay? Not a recommendation, just a confession, okay? He said, why don't you, why don't you teach? So I came in here on a Wednesday, taught. A couple days later, was at Snapper Jack's. Walk in, he's over there eating. He's like, hey, Mark, listen to your sermon online. I'm like, I'll find a new church, sorry. He said, hey, come over here. He's like, we're having some change in the college ministry. It's kind of been like, you know, kind of on the fritz and, and we're looking to change up all the ministries really and kind of turn them into teaching ministries that they're all going to be led, that the college and the high school and the junior high would be teaching led ministries. I want you to pray about leading the college ministry. That's when they swooped in. I have never experienced such intense accusation. First thing in my mind comes up is my entire past, my entire history, my porn addiction, my premarital sex with a girlfriend in high school, my anger issues with my parents in high school. That's when that was brought up. That's when that came to the front of my mind. And that's clearly not the Holy Spirit. That's not how he operates. So the accusations roared about my past. And Satan at that moment was trying to make me believe that what I had done is who I am and therefore I am disqualified from being on the field. And you need to know that this is a classic tactic. He had lied to me in the past. He had tempted me in the past. But now the accusation come to step back off the field. So what is it for you? What did you bring here tonight? Is it a sexual history? You thought it was fun and okay at the time? Is it a recurring sin? Tell yourself, God, I'm never going to do that again. You go a couple days, you might even get a couple weeks, and it happens again. Is it divorce? Haven't been able to shake that your marriage ended? Is it a relationship? Is it anger? Is it parenting for the parents? Is it when your kid goes astray, do you say, if I had just been a better parent? I'll tell you this, if you're young and you haven't necessarily felt or experienced the full-fledged accusation of of, of long-term faith walk and having a deep history and a long history, I can tell you this, at some point you will do something. You will do something, quote, so bad in your life that you spend an enormous amount of time, amount of time trying to get over it. Accepting that you're forgiven and yet 
for some reason we can't get past our past. We may have gotten over the pain, but how many of us have experienced a feeling that we haven't gotten over what we've done? It may not hurt like it did, but it is still being leveled against us that what we've done is who we are. And that is Satan's voice. That is the demon's voice. That is the accusation. It's not that you failed. It's that you are a failure. It's not that you don't feel valued. It's that you're not of value. It's not that you don't feel joy. It's that you don't deserve joy. It's not that you don't feel loved. It's that you don't deserve to be loved. It's not that you have a character flaw. It's that you are permanently flawed. It's not that you have been damaged. It's that you are permanently damaged. It's not just something you've done. It's who you forever are. And when he locks you into that accusation, it pulls many of us off the field. It causes many of us to retreat. That's what the voice of the accuser sounds like. He wants to lie to you, tempt you, so that he can accuse you. Not so that he can steal your salvation, but so that he can steal your enjoyment of your salvation. I'll tell you this, that voice gets really loud in ministry, in trials, in a covenant of marriage, in a blessing of having children. There are what some theologians, I believe the Puritans talk quite a bit about this, seasons of accusation. You may not be in a season right now, but, but know that some of those good things that God wants you to enjoy will create an intensifying season of accusation to lock you into the idea that you are not simply damaged. You have not been just damaged, that you are damaged, that that's who you are. And it sounds like you screwed up. You're going to screw up again. Why even fight it? This is who you are, Mark. This is what you do. You always have. You always will. That's your problem, and you are that problem. He loves to tell us that our trials is because God is punishing us. You've heard me preach on that. If God is punishing you for your sin, then the cross is null and void. I, the, the most loving thing, and I almost well up every time I tell people, one of those loving things I can tell you as your pastor is that unequivocally, God is not punishing you for your sin. If he already punished Jesus as your sin, it would be unjust for him to do it again. It would be unjust. So he is not punishing you for your sin. The Bible says your sin will find you out, that you will reap what you sow at an earthly level. But I am here to tell you that God's wrath was satisfied on the cross. He's not mad anymore. 
he will punish those who die apart from him. We see that in Revelation and Jesus who now holds the entirety of the wrath and the judgment of God will be the one that pours it back out. But you need to know that if you are in Christ, God is not punishing you for your sin. And it's actually kind of selfish of us. We're like, well, yeah, he punished all sin for all of eternity on the cross. I get that. But mine was so bad that God had to dole out a little extra punishment. You see how self suddenly were the center of the universe and Jesus didn't take it all. God is not punishing you for your sin. And I'll tell you, as we, as we go into this, this understanding of the accusation, admittedly, admittedly, it can get a little confusing because there is a spiritual battle going on and the Holy Spirit, as Satan points out your sin, so does the Holy Spirit who points out your sin, but I want to draw a clear delineation between the two we should rely on the Holy Spirit pointing out our sin. We should rely on him convicting of our sin, but we need to know the difference between conviction and condemnation. One is of the devil and one is of God himself. And and just as Satan points out your sin, the Holy Spirit does as well. The difference is that the spirit convicts, John 16, 9 and 14, Satan condemns. The Holy Spirit convicts, Satan condemns. And we went over a list and I love how many of you asked me this week and texted me and emailed me for that list of the Holy Spirit stuff, the works of the Holy Spirit last week. I'll give you a couple more. So he not only convicts of our sin, people are like, wow, that's kind of harsh. But, but remember, and this is a partial list of what I read last week is that he also anoints and he assures and he comforts and he cleanses and he empowers and he fills and he guides and he helps and he leads and he molds and he regenerates and he sanctifies and he seals and he strengthens and he teaches and he gives victory over the flesh. And if you want that list, I have Bible verses for every single one. You can bank on that promise that the Holy Spirit is in charge of those things. He convicts, but he does not condemn. And and here's where I'm going to get a little nerdy. Stay with me if you will. I want us to take a look at this position of righteousness versus our practice of righteousness. Stay with me. Got to turn, turn your thinking caps on. We operate in two capacities. One is our position of righteousness before God. The other one is the practice of righteousness before men. Okay. Here's what it sounds like. Our position of righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So in Jesus, before God, we are righteous. We are blameless. We are spotless. We are clean. We are pure. We are perfect. That is our position of righteousness before God. But what we get confused about is that we know that and we say that we're like, yes, but yesterday I dot, 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 right? So I I hear that, but why doesn't that play out? Because you're moving into the realm of the practice of righteousness. And that's on earth. Hebrews 10, 14 says, for by one offering, he has perfected, get this, one of my favorite verses, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. 
So he says, you are perfect and holy and blameless in Christ. That's what he's done, not what you're doing. And know that you are seen as perfect, not when you're perfect, but when you're in a process. And so we confuse our position of righteousness with our practice of righteousness. We believe this, but we feel and see this. And it confuses us. And this is that process of sanctification. And so sometimes we walk in righteousness and sometimes we walk in unrighteousness and we confuse it with our position because it's our day-to-day practice. And it's not that you're saved and then unsaved and saved and then unsaved. It's that your position has not changed, but your process is in place and unfolding. Does that make sense? You have a position of righteousness before God. You have a practice of righteousness before men. And when we confuse those, we begin to compound the accusations. The difference between the spirit and Satan is that the spirit wants you to base your practice on your position. He says, you are perfect. And I want to see that play out. Satan Satan wants you to base your position on your practice. He says, really? Because you've been, he runs this game. The Holy Spirit plays that truth. He says, you are perfect. You are set apart. You are holy in Christ. And I want your life to reflect that. Satan says, look at your life. It's a mess. There's no way you're perfected. Does that make sense? Because we've confused position and practice. This is the difference between conviction and condemnation. The spirit says to you, look at what you've done. That is not who you are. Satan says, look at what you've done. That is all that you are. And again, you have to be introspective. I I can't mediate that for you. The Holy Spirit has to bring up your list. He has to bring up your past. He has to allow you to mend that with him, not be accused of it by Satan. And so you have to, you have to look in, you have to not look inward. You have to look to the Holy Spirit for him to begin to mend these wounds. The Spirit says that you do not have to do the things that you've done because you are not who you used to be. Satan says that you are a slave to the things that you have done because you are nothing more than you used to be. Conviction produces a hatred of sin. Condemnation produces a hatred of self. The closer you get to Jesus, the more you will hate your sin. I guarantee it. Paul began his ministry as a self-proclaimed sinner and he ended his ministry. You'd think he got better. He ended his ministry as a self-proclaimed chief of sinners he probably sinned less, right? Sanctified by the Holy Spirit. But as he got closer to Jesus, even the smaller sins seemed bigger before a perfect God. But he had joy about it. He said, I'm the chief of sinners. Why? Because he was closer to perfection. He was closer to Jesus. And the little things become big things when you're standing next to him. And so how do we overcome this? How do we overcome This accusation, again, it says the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. It says this, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb. It could not be more complex or more simple than that. 
It could not be so deep and yet so seemingly easy as that by the blood of the lamb. How do we overcome accusation? It says, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb. I want to read you Hebrews 10, 4 and 8 through 10. It says, for it is not possible for the blood. And if you don't know much about Hebrews, it's, 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 a, it's a priestly book that takes a lot of look at the, the priestly activity in the Old Testament. You have to understand the Old Testament to truly appreciate a book like Hebrews. And Hebrews can give you amazing insight into understanding the Old Testament. And so Hebrews is talking about the blood that had been shed. Every family would shed blood consistently. They said that blood ran from the temple consistently is that there was constantly being unblemished animals sacrificed for the sins of a family. And it says, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. So the answer to the Old Testament question is, did that bloodshed take away sin? The answer is no, it simply covered it. It was a precursor to the one that could remove it. So it says, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. And verse eight through 10, it says, previously saying sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them. God ordained them, but found no satisfaction in them. Why? Because he was telling a greater narrative. He was telling a greater story that was but a, a, an intro to the entrance of Jesus. The entire Old Testament has one goal to get you to Christ. And it says, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first. That's the first covenant. It's the old covenant. It's the Old Testament. Doesn't mean it's irrelevant. It just means that there's something better. It says, he takes away the first so that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sacrificed through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. How do we overcome that? We are saturated with the gospel. When you saturate with the gospel, you inoculate to a certain degree, the accusation. And I want to say this, when you encounter the accuser, and I don't know, he may amplify to counteract this message. I can tell you that I I rarely am accused apart from early in the ministry. Uh, Most pastors, I think would admit that we spend a lot of our Monday dealing with the accusation from Sunday. Monday, and you can, I've seen some of the stats, pastors go through many depressions on Monday. I had a dad who was a pastor for 40 years. He took Mondays off. Not only is there this huge adrenaline spike that causes almost like a, a depression in how you feel. I actually think I'm lucky that I have a full-time, I, I have to wake up and get right back on the grind tomorrow at my office because I'm, I'm not on church staff. I, I think I don't allow myself to deal with that. But what I can tell you is that the accusation starts fast and it comes furiously. You said, what? You didn't say it right. You weren't loving enough. You didn't care for them. You were thinking about other things. You didn't prepare as well as you should have. You didn't wrap that thing up like you could have. You didn't say the right things. You didn't get deep enough into this. And so the accusations, even for a, a preacher comes in, and it may be for you too, now that, that, that you've been armed with the same sort of weapon that he's deploying, he may finally start shooting at you in this regard. And what I want you to do is I want you to, when you encounter the accuser, I want you to fix your gaze on the advocate. First John 2, first book I ever taught through in my life, start to finish, was First John. 
First John two verses one through two says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, so raise your hand if you've sinned. Some of you don't even want to admit it. (laughs) And if, 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 if anyone sins, he says, we have an advocate with the father, capital A. That's Jesus says, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation. Propitiation is the Bible word for the removal of divine wrath. A propitiation means that wrath was intended and wrath has been removed. And so God's eternal wrath was meant to be poured out on us. And Jesus as our propitiation absorbed the fullness of the wrath of God. And it says we have a propitiation, propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And so if you were to set up a courtroom, Bible tells us that we have an accuser. There is a prosecuting attorney and that is the devil. And he has, I'm sorry to say, he has a really good case. In fact, he's right. Far be it for us to think that he's always wrong. He's 100% right when he brings up our sin, is he not? He doesn't need to make stuff up. We've given him all the ammo he needs. He stands before the judge and he says, are you kidding me, judge? Mark has done this list of 487 trillion things. And you know what my advocate says? You're right. Jesus comes in the fullness of grace and truth. He's not going to say, no, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. He didn't do that. I didn't see it. He's going to say, you're right. But Satan, like when he quotes the Bible, he misses things. And I also pulled this out. So look, we know the, the wages of sin is death. Is it not? Romans 6.23. But if you've done what I've done, and I've heard preachers, preachers that I love and I listen to and I care for, um, and, and, I, and, I, and I love to hear from them, but, but a lot of preachers set up the courtroom like this. You've got the accuser on one side, you've got the advocate on the other, and you've got God the Father before it all, yeah? And so Jesus pleads your case before the Father. Satan accuses you, and he's right. He says, you've done so many things, God, you cannot let this guy in. And Jesus pleads the same thing, but, but here's what we have to remember. John 5, 22 says that the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son. It's not just an advocate. It's advocate, judge, and jury in Jesus And he levels, Satan levels every accusation. He brings up everything from your past. He says, you are, you are everything that you have done. That is who you are. And therefore you could not be fit for heaven. You could not be fit for eternity in fellowship with God who is perfect and holy and is light. And within light could be no darkness. There is no way that you are compatible with God. And Jesus himself, the advocate says, Satan, you're right. But at the same time, you're wrong. He says, because the wages of sin is death. Mark deserves death. And as my advocate, he says, but I died. On behalf of him, I plead blood. Not his tainted blood, my heavenly perfect blood. And God could never condemn him if in that moment he had condemned 
me, it would be unjust for two people to serve a sentence for the same crime. And Jesus said it was all on me and God poured it out all on me. And so as our advocate, judge and jury, he says, if he's in me, if she's in me, we're good. It's done, it's complete, it's finished. That's why the Bible says, be perfect as your father is perfect. And we say, how can we be perfect? Because when we're in Jesus, we're perfect. So as judge, jury, Jesus is our advocate and he pleads blood. He doesn't deny our sin, he takes our sin. But how does that become a felt reality in our lives? You're like, good sermon, pastor. I get it, I'll nod my head. I'm forgiven. Jesus did his thing. But how does that become a felt reality in our lives? He gives us this. It says, and they overcame by the blood of the lamb. Listen to this. And it says, and, there's a second component, and by the word of their testimony. He says, so you're saturated with the gospel. You're saturated with that which Jesus has done for you. It's not what you do. It's what he has done. He says, and by the word of their testimony. He didn't say biography. A biography is your story with you at the center. A testimony is your story with Jesus at the center. And so when he brings up your past, when he brings up your deviance, when he brings up your crimes, when he brings up your sin, you turn the biography of your failure into the testimony of his grace. You say, Satan, you are right. And Jesus is greater. I did that. And here's what Jesus has done because of that. I did all those things you said. I've done them all. And they went to prove how much Jesus cares and loves and pursues and covers me. You turn the biography of your failure into a testimony of his grace. No longer are we defined by what we have done, but by what Jesus has done. No longer are we a slave to our sin. The Bible says we are now a slave to righteousness. No longer are we dead in our sin, but we are dead to our sin. No longer is it I who lives, but it is Christ who lives within me. And no longer are we ruled by our accuser. We are righteous because of our advocate. And so I would say as we go into this time of worship, that we spend some very purposed time redirecting what Satan may be leveling at you this week, right now, or what he will level at you this week. And we take that and we convert that focus on the accuser and the accusations. And we translate that into a testimony of our advocate. We are no longer ruled by our accuser. We are righteous because of our advocate. Amen. All right, let's pray and go into a time of worship. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for this understanding. Thank you for what you've done on our behalf. There isn't a single person in this room deserving of what you've done, but that's what makes it grace. If we deserved it, it would be owed to us. 
and it wouldn't be nearly as beautiful. And so these accusations will come. You tell us, you explain to us, you describe to us that the accusations will come. Our past will be leveled against us. Satan and his minions will attempt to make our biography about our failures. Tonight, I pray in our heart that we turn that into a testimony of your grace. That our failures would but show the greater grace where sin abounds, grace abounds greater. And so I pray that Holy Spirit, that we would spend some time with you. That we would be open, that we would be scored, that we'd be willing to be healed knowing that you are our advocate, Jesus, that you are judge and jury, and in you, we are perfect. So I pray again for for all of us here as we go into this week, that we would not be unaware of this scheme of Satan, but that we would be prepared for this scheme of Satan. Jesus, be high and lifted up so that our attention would be focused on you, the author and the finisher of our faith. For our good, and for your glory. We love you. Thank you for what you've done, what you're doing, and what you still have yet to do, Jesus. In your name, amen.